Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I strive to go from zero to hero on a daily basis, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a hapless roly-poly puppy, glued to my TV screen and oblivious to the world around me, as we watch through 58 films and counting. Our very own Colonel is, of course, Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how's things? I'm good. I'm, I'm tired-ish. This is a late one for us because of our special guest. I'm not trying to put any of the blame on them for my weaker <laughs> performance than usual in this episode, but you know. Yeah, you have teed up. We do have a special guest who we're going to introduce at the moment, which has facilitated a, a late recording. Uh, so if we sound bleary-eyed, it's not because we've been kidnapped and put in front of the TV by an evil fashionista. It is because we are joined by... Well, let me see this up properly. I love movies, and I write about them for a living. Sam loves movies, he analyses them, he teaches people about them, and he writes academic pieces on them. But this week, we're joined by a guy who actually makes them. Not only that, but he's the writer-director behind one of my very favourite movies this year, a brand new animated adventure that's already becoming an instant classic among families and Furbies alike. So a huge, huge welcome to the podcast, Mike Reander, the writer-director of The Mitchells vs. The Machines. Oh my god, thank you so much. That was very nice. Uh, no, I, I, I really enjoy this podcast, so I'm happy to be a part of it. Oh, that is so awesome. And we are both huge fans of Mitchells vs. The Machines. I absolutely loved it. As soon as I saw it, I texted Sam and said, you are going to go insane over this film. It is gorgeously animated. It is so, so crazily funny. It's everything you love in a movie. And Sam... That was your experience too, right? Yeah, it does something different, which is all that I look for Like when you watch as many animated movies as I do, especially when it comes to that level of like big-budget Hollywood animated filmmaking. You tend to start to see the same things over and over again, not naming any names. So when something comes along that is doing something visually on another level, I start thinking, wow, this is great. How do I work this into a lecture? And I think I've already figured out how it's going to be Ooh. on my syllabus next term. Wow. So. <laughs> All right. That's exciting. Sure. Let me know. No spoilers here. <laughs> how a group of children uh, ruined Sony animation. <laughs> the Mitchells versus the Machine story. Mike, how have the past few weeks been for you? Because I think the film's been out probably about a month by the time you record this. Yeah. What, what's it been like for you? I mean, it's it's been really wonderful. Like, it, it's so wild because I've been working on this movie 
I hate to say it, but I it's the truth. Uh, for six years, <laughs> um, it was like six years when I started, you know, working at at, at Sony, um, and even longer than that before I had the ideas. So it's like you know, you're just working in isolation. People could have hated it. It could have been a nightmare. You know, I could be sort of receiving, uh, you know, uh, death threats in the mail. <laughs> so I'm, I, it's, it's really gratifying that people like it as much as we did, because we all really loved it. And, and that was like, also the first hurdle to get through was just to get the crew happy with it. <laughs> yeah. um, because, and it's funny, like looking at 101 Dalmatians, it's like, I look at these movies differently now um, that I've sort of made one because it's, it's so easy to be a jerk when you're a kid and you're like, ah, these are terrible, you know, or whatever. And, you know, having gone through the process of making one, they're really hard to make and they're really hard to make good. And I thought 101 Dalmatians was a delight. So it was cool, cool to see. I mean, do you enjoy watching animated movies still? At the moment? Is, it, is it too much like work for you? <laughs> what do you love about animation? No, I love animation to a freakish, uh, nightmarish degree <laughs> <laughs> to where like I, my wife is like, I don't like going to see animated movies with you because i'll be like watching something and i'm like nah, i'm mad you know like i turn into a he-man villain because it's you know because i really love it so i'm like if it's really great i'm like rapturously excited about it and if it's really bad i i'm i'm just sad you know often for the artists that worked on it i'm like oh no this could have been so good or whatever i grew up watching miyazaki movies and pixar movies and i actually again like in my jerky teenage years was like i hate disney ah i like warner brothers disney's garbage um you know it's sentimental Ugh. um and it wasn't <laughs> until later that i kind of became a student and wanted to make my own animated movies that i was like oh i should watch all of these and i was like oh they're not all t you know my stereotype of them as being just you know for kids and safe and stuff was you know, it's sort of true, but I really love a lot of the movies now looking back on them. But as a kid, I was like, yeah, Disney. <laughs> I was like furious about him. I don't it's know funny. why. The, the way you talk about it all is completely the way that Sam talks about it all as well, of just falling in love with cartoons, being like, I'm going to make this my entire life. And at some point going, hey, maybe Disney isn't the safe, cuddly option that I always thought it was. Because you do have, you, everyone has that moment of rejection as a teenager, whether it's animation in general or Disney in particular, and people gravitate more towards maybe Pixar or Warner Brothers or like anime, but it's a rejection of Disney. And there's like, everyone has a black hole of the Disney movies that came out in cinemas when they were like 13, 14, 15, sure, 16. Sure, yeah, absolutely. We're not interested. And then those chosen ones among us realize <laughs> that there are great artists working on these movies and that maybe even if you have issues with things like the sentimentality or with Disney as a corporate entity as some people do, not necessarily going to say that I do myself or not, I'll <laughs> leave that to people to guess, but um, you realise that there are artists who make these things and that they function as great works of art. Yeah, the, the craft is mind-boggling. You know, even a movie that is sort of like, you you know, because like, I think you guys did just did Sleeping Beauty or Sleeping Beauty was the movie right before this. And it's like, I don't like Sleeping Beauty as a movie. It's beautiful, but it's kind of a snoozer a little bit. But it's like, even if it's like the story, I you know, might not be working 100 percent, 
it's gorgeous to look at and like kind of spellbinding. And I think that, that that's one thing I was excited about. This one is like, I, I really feel like the story was exciting and the, and the visuals were really like um, enchanting as well. I mean, I have to say, I loved Sleeping Beauty when we covered that in the last episode, but it did lack a giant marauding Furby and a pug who's trying to lick a cupcake off his own face. I got some notes, <laughs> Hamilton Lusk. <laughs> You mentioned uh, before the uh, kind of growing up on Miyazaki and Pixar, but I wanted to ask, what's your history with Disney? What Disney movies did you grow up on? What was your kind of Disney generation? Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, it was like Aladdin and Little Mermaid. And and that was the stuff I was rebelling against because I'm like, I'm I'm a boy. <laughs> Little Mermaid is for girls. Um, and I did sort of like I had this sort of like bias against like the sentimentality of it. And I really love Warner Brothers because they felt like more like real people. I remember like in high school, I was like, what is Mickey? He has no personality. He's like, hi, here, here I am. <laughs> and then it's just like he's just standing there, you know, for three minutes or whatever. But it, it's sort of like as I've sort of like gotten more into in animation. And it's like I loved Lilo and Stitch, you know, like that's one of my all time faves. I started watching them from the beginning. So like Snow White and, and Dumbo and stuff when I was like in 17 and 18. But it started out like it was like Little Mermaid era. And these days, what are your favorite Disney movies? The ones that you maybe went back and watched as an older teenager when you were getting into animation or some of the more recent ones? Do any hold a special place in your heart? Yeah, I mean, I love Lilo and Stitch because it's like it's like it's so specific. It's really funny. It's really its own thing. You know, it sort of it sort of feels like singular in, in terms of voice. And it's and I still find those characters really charming. And they're really specific, too, which I really love. And, and the, the characters really have an emotional reality to them. And, you know, going back, I, I really like Dumbo. I like Pinocchio. I like Snow White. I really like the early ones because it really felt like they were sort of discovering a new language as they were going and, and trying to figure out how to take these little whimsical stories and give them enough depth and, and sort of heart to sustain 90 minutes and stuff. And it, it's, it's a really interesting evolution. And I love a lot of those movies because I think that's like my favorite era is like the really early ones like Dumbo and uh, Snow White and Pinocchio and stuff. So you've already mentioned Warner Brothers, but is there any other animation from this era that we're looking at that you go back to as an influence for the stuff that you work on? When I was a teenager, I was like obsessed with Warner Brothers cartoons and I had a Rod Scribner blog. Rod Scribner is a very uh, obscure animator who worked for Bob Clampett um, in the 40s. So it's like, I really loved stuff from the 40s. You know, I sort of, my, my like animation zone was sort of like, I loved Fleischer Brothers cartoons and Warner Brothers cartoons, but I kind of skipped over like 60s and 70s and, and went straight to like Ren and Stimpy and The Simpsons and Miyazaki movies and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I didn't have a lot of like a big knowledge base of this stuff. But like when I got really nerdy, you know, in my high school years and I was like watching Ub Iwerks shorts and Terry tunes and stuff like um, I was like, I really dug deep into like all the you know sort of flavors animation had to offer you mentioned uh, fleischer cartoons there i think we might bring that up at some point later in the in this episode maybe even but i wanted to ask i slid into your dms a couple of weeks ago asked you if you wanted to be on the podcast you graciously agreed and the film you picked was 101 dalmatians as we are now recording it so why this movie? Why did you pick this one? I get excited about it because it's like contemporary or it was contemporary in the 60s. You know, um, 
it's sort of an anomaly in the Disney canon, you know, because it's like, I really love grounded stories. And that's sort of why I like Lilo and Stitch and, and why I like 101 Dalmatians and, and stuff is like, I enjoy like stuff like Snow White that's really fantastical and fairy tale like, but, and then also I just think the story is good. I just remember lo- loving it. And I remember loving it even as a grown up or whatever, or an 18 year old or whatever. I remember like really getting into Bill Pete, who did the story when I was like a teenager and stuff and, and thinking that he was cool and sort of in watching some of the like bonus features for 101 Dalmatians. It's, it's really interesting to see that he storyboarded the whole movie from start to finish, which I had no idea. And is is so wild after making a movie because it basically means, you know, it's like the movie had three directors, but to a large extent, if you're doing the storyboards, you're kind of directing the movie you know, you're picking the camera angles, you're doing the acting, you're figuring out what goes in and what goes out. And it was cool to see as, you know, someone with a singular voice do one of these things. Because sometimes I think when Walt was there, it was sort of him. And I think in some eras of the Disney studio, you could kind of feel the patchwork quality of it didn't really have an author, you know, or, or like the stories feel a little bit disparate and stuff. And this one really felt like contained. Amazing. Well, it's an excellent choice. And that is enough from us. We're all sat down. The register is complete and it's time for class to begin. So this time, after the lavish and distinctive designs of Sleeping Beauty, we're lining up another canine classic with 1961's 101 Dalmatians. Now, I'm sure pretty much everyone is is aware of what the plot of this film is. As the title tells you, there are 101 Dalmatians, and as we know, there's an iconic villain trying to get her hands on them. But Sam, for people who haven't seen it lately, or just have been living under a rock, what is the plot in a little bit more detail of 101 Dalmatians? Well, Roger and Anita are living happily in London with their Dalmatians, Pongo and Pedita. When the villainous fashionista Cruella de Vil hears about their oncoming litter of puppies. Desperate for a spotted fur coat, she hires some goons for a dog napping. Pongo and Pedita team up with seemingly every dog in the southeast to mount a rescue mission and get them back. Okay, so that was the plot of 101 Dalmatians. Now, this film is taking us into a new decade for Disney. It's the 60s. So, Sam, what's happening at the studio at this point in time? Well, as we kind of covered on the last few episodes, really, Walt is a lot busier with other projects than he had been, with things like the Disneyland theme park, the Disneyland TV shows, various live-action movies. He has less and less time for the animation studio, and that animation studio itself has been put into a bit of an existential crisis by the relative commercial failure of Sleeping Beauty. Very expensive, performed reasonably well, but nowhere near enough to make back its budget. And now the business people, the money guys, are suggesting that Walt shut the animation studio. And most official histories say that Walt was like, no, we are not doing this. The animation is is what this studio was built on. We'll have to keep it alive at all costs. Whether or not that was true, I don't know. That sounds like maybe... A history that's been written a little bit after the fact, but that's the story that is told. Wait, so so we could have had the end of Disney animated movies because of Sleeping Beauty flopping. They're like, we've got we've got theme parks, we've got live action movies. Who needs the animated stuff anymore? That's crazy. Can you imagine that world where there's no more Disney movies after or animated Disney movies after Sleeping Beauty? I mean, this that isn't even the only existential crisis that the studio has faced thus far, and it certainly won't be the last that it faces. Like. 
for how successful these movies are today, they are constantly staring down the barrel of a gun. This whole studio is feels that it's constantly on the bubble, constantly on the edge. There's so many points where things could have just all packed in completely. And so Sleeping Beauty was so expensive, didn't recoup its budget, they splurged huge amounts of cash on it. We're going to get into this in the main discussion, but 101 Dalmatians looks and feels completely different to Sleeping Beauty and Lady and the Tramp and kind of anything else in the Disney canon. So was that all a reaction to the lukewarm reception of Sleeping Beauty? I don't get the sense that the new aesthetic and the contemporary feel of the movie was a result of people saying, oh, well, audiences didn't respond to Sleeping Beauty, which was our big, grandiose fantasy movie, so let's do something more grounded, more down-to-earth. But in an effort to save costs, in an effort to produce a cheaper movie, that is what they ended up with. So a lot of these aesthetic qualities that we're talking about that seem like such a departure from that previous movie and from a lot of the previous movies result from cost-saving measures. This is an adaptation. This is based on a novel by Dodie Smith. How long was that on Walt's radar? So the novel came out in 1956. Disney read it in 1957. And again, as the story is told, immediately tried to secure the rights. Dodie Smith was very happy to oblige. She said that when she was writing the novel, she was picturing it as a Disney movie to help her visualise some of the scenes. She was picturing it as a cartoon, which is a different experience than that Walt would have with various other novelists, um, as would be the case in Mary Poppins, for example. So he took the novel and he passed it to the aforementioned Bill Pete and said, basically, adapt this. And this was a new approach. This was a different approach. The Disney studio had not really given a single guy so much control over the story before. So not only did he storyboard the whole thing, which was unusual in itself for like a solo guy to do, he actually wrote a treatment, he wrote a script before the storyboarding took place, which had never been done before and which would remain fairly rare in animation. I mean, Mike, do you guys script Mitchells or did it start with boards? No, we scripted it first. And I think it, you know, it's like great movies have been made all different ways but i do think that it's a nice start to have like a script that's like you're feeling pretty good about because then you can sort of improvise on that and sort of have at least a spine to work with and it's sort of wild to imagine them not having that before (laughs) and i do think that's one of the reasons why the movie hangs together so well is because it it was it's like really compact and considered and you could sort of lay all the beats out on the table. Yeah, it feels quite scripted, right? It's more dialogue heavy than a lot of the previous ones. There's certainly more verbal humour than in a lot of the previous ones that we've encountered. Uh, I would say maybe more character focused, certainly than something like Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty as well. So yeah, you do get that sense. Okay, so I think we've teed this up enough. Let's go in for our big discussion of 101 Dalmatians. Last time then, with Sleeping Beauty, we had the typical classic Disney storybook opening, and this time we have something completely different. For me, the opening of 101 Dalmatians, uh, which, by the way, not numbers, it's full words, 101 Dalmatians. Uh, It takes a long time to type it out every time. But this gives us pretty much our first proper opening credits title sequence, really. It's an extended sequence. There's a really beautiful title card with all the dogs everywhere. There's this really energetic jazz music. 
it kind of reminded me, as somebody who doesn't have the wider reference points, it made me think of Monsters, Inc. You know, with the... And the very stylized animation uh, that comes with that title sequence. But yeah, it feels like something that we haven't had in any of the other Disney movies we've watched so far. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. Um, and, it, and it does really feel like it, it sort of is like the 60s. <laughs> They're like, we're done with the old stuff. And, and I thought it was really cool just because it really highlights all of the primary artists like in a way that is like kind of cool where it's like Ken Anderson's name is like written giant on the screen and like, God bless him. Why not? You know, he designed the whole movie, you know? So it's like, it, I, I thought it was really fun and, and sort of seemed like a celebration of both the process. Cause it was cool where you were like seeing the audience could kind of like track how the movie was made through the opening where it's like, Oh, that's what layout is just a background and then they add the characters and then that's the character animation department or whatever um and it was like i i I thought it was like such a fun and inviting way to start the movie yeah you get little music notes for the score and you get a little little typewriter font for the script yeah it's cool and like you say it feels immediately contemporary it feels immediately very 1960s which is kind of weird to say because like jazz had existed for a while <laughs> like jazz had been around for a long time jazz had been in cartoons since like the 1920s you know since the yeah. early 1930s at least and yet for disney modernization was oh let's put lots of jazz in all of our movies so you get it in the jungle book you get it in the aristocats it feels very like an old man's version of what is hip and modern and contemporary but yeah. watching it back now after watching all these other disney movies it does feel like a blast from the present yeah well and it's it's funny because I, I like watched the documentary and you can see the how old everyone was and it's like they weren't young guys like which leads to why the level of craft is like so wildly impeccable like they're all like at the top of their form but it is i i do know what you're saying where it's like these weren't like the hippest cats I don't think making oh, them call them the nine old men for a reason. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> yeah, this feels so radical in the wake of all the other Disney movies we've watched so far. I completely agree with you guys. It feels contemporary. I love that as Sam mentioned the musical notes are like Dalmatian spots. Just all these lovely little touches. Also, we are back in Academy Ratio. They have sacked off CinemaScope. I presume, Sam, that was just too expensive. I guess so. And then you also got when you read the contemporary reviews of Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty a weirdly large number of them specifically dissed CinemaScope and were like, this is too big. This makes the dogs look gigantic. So maybe it was was something of a response to that. But yeah, again, the CinemaScope process was expensive. And it's not just the Academy ratio that makes this film look completely different. Right from the beginning, it has a completely different visual style. It's got a very playful, very textural feel. It feels like kind of sketchbooks. You can really feel the sort of pen and pencil textures. To me, the thing it kind of reminded me of, again, my outsider perspective in, is, I don't know if either of you were, I know Sam's not a massive Springsteen head. Mike, are you a Springsteen guy? Uh, not a ton. I like him, but I don't know anything about him. So he made an album called Nebraska, where he'd done a bunch of like massive, lavish albums, and he made an album called Nebraska that I think he recorded basically demos on a four-track cassette or whatever, and afterwards was like, oh, I don't need to re-record this. Th- this is the album this kind of slightly rawer form 
is what this album needs to be. And for me, that's kind of what I felt seeing the art style of 101 Dalmatians. It felt, compared to what we've just seen, way less slick, way less stylized, but there's so much personality in that texture and in the kind of sketchbooky feel. You guys can probably put that in much more eloquent ways than I can, rather than through some random Bruce Springsteen analogy. I got yeah. it. I got it. I, I, I was with you. Um, no, it's so it's so wild. It's so like textural and warm and it like matches the story really well because it's a really intimate story. It's not like this grand big story, you know, and I, I think you seeing the hand of the artist and seeing, um, you know, because they use the Xerox process just to save time and money. And as such, like all of the drawings look sketchier, but they really leaned into it, which was like really cool where they're like, OK, if the drawings are going to look sketchy, let's make the whole movie look sketchy. Um, and they made it look like this drawing by this guy. I think they were inspired by this guy, Ronald Searle, who, like, all animation students are like, Ronald Searle! Like, even to this day, people are like, just, like, worship Ronald Searle. And you could, like, look through portfolios, like, that person's ripping off Ronald Searle, that person's ripping off Ronald Searle. Um, and I think it's because of this movie, like, um, where people sort of found out, they, like, see this movie and see that they were inspired by him. But it's really warm and lovely, and it's also cool to see, like, a house in a Disney movie that's, like, a disaster. That's, like, that's sort of where, the like, the overlap with my movie or whatever. It's, like, I really liked how messy the house was and how lived in everything felt. Because sometimes, you know, the knock on Disney is that it can be a little bit anesthetized. And uh, I thought that part of it was really cool. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because I know something we've talked about with Mitchell's versus the Machines is that the visual style there, you wanted it to have that personality, to have that slight messiness, that there's a sort of humanity yeah. to that. And I definitely felt that in 101 Dalmatians as I was watching it. And it's so interesting. I read the story about the guy, Ken Anderson, who did the art direction. And it's sort of this tragic story because he got excited about this technique and was like, whoa, Walt, we can save a bunch of money this way. And Walt's like, whatever. I'm making Mary Poppins shut up, <laughs> you idiots. <laughs> and then they sort of went down this process and they started making this movie and they saved a bunch of money. And then the movie came out and people loved it. And it was a success. And then in response, Walt was like, that was terrible. We're never doing that again. Ken Anderson, you could never be the art director in another of my anime and like publicly humiliates him. And then he had a stroke a year later because he was like kind of fired and stripped of his, you know, Disney medals or something. And he got better, but like it was really intense. Like he, this guy made this amazing movie that everyone loved and, and Walt was just screaming at him. It, it was like an interesting story because Walt is like this strange character who like willed you know, all these movies into existence, but it seems like he could be hard to work for. <laughs> well, the follow-up to that story that Ken Anderson tells is that, like, years later, a few years later, Walt came into the animation studio for, like, the first time in a while. This was towards the end of Walt's life. And he met Ken Anderson, and he was like, Ken, the stuff that you did on that 101 Dalmatians movie. And then that was the end of the sentence. But then Ken tells the story saying... And I knew, I saw the look in his eyes, the look of forgiveness. <laughs> Assumed forgiveness. Okay, yeah, you've, you've maybe read into it a little bit there, but <laughs> you do what you have to do to get up every day, don't you? So, Disney hated this look because he hated lines. So, he, you can already see if you look at, in particular, Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty, they've started to replace black lines with lines that match the colour or approximate the colour of the, the ink of the character's skin or whatever. Because 
he thought that lines remind the viewer that what they're looking at is a drawing, as opposed to helping them get invested in this world, which had always been his whole project from the very start, is how can we make people believe in what they're watching, even though it's animation. So he saw this as an artistic downturn following Sleeping Beauty, but like, even if that's the metric that you're working on, of course it's going to be an artistic downturn following Sleeping Beauty, because you can't hope to match that, that only looked like it did because of how much money was put into it, money which it subsequently lost. So even if you don't like <laughs> the way this movie looks, you can't put it next to Sleeping Beauty. We've been talking about this process, and I don't think I actually told Ben how they made this movie. Oh, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Ben's a little bit confused. I'm always confused, Sam, that's my whole deal. <laughs> so the look, and actually I think the Springsteen analogy came quite close because what they used here was a process called xerography which was developed by Ubiworks who created Mickey Mouse with in quotes Walt and left <laughs> <laughs> over the disputes following that and uh, eventually returned to do effects at the studio and to develop special techniques is, is how they credit him and he spent years modifying the Xerox photocopier so that they could instead of having people trace over the animators drawings in ink to get them onto the cells they could just basically photocopy them onto the cells and eliminate a whole branch of the studio which is its own tragedy because at this point ink and paint was the only sector at the studio that women really were allowed to work in so this device meant that all these women were losing the jobs and losing their kind of place in the animation industry which is obviously a horrible thing but this led to this unique aesthetic and it was also basically a necessity for a movie like 101 Dalmatians which contains 101 Dalmatians dogs with spots on them that people were going to have to draw by hand and spot by hand. So the photocopier was very useful. And you can see scenes where there's a bit where they're all running across the road and like, oh, every single dog is being photocopied. Every single dog is being Xeroxed <laughs> in this scene. It's absolutely wild to make a movie about 101 effing Dalmatians. Like, what <laughs> were they doing? <laughs> like, I've hand animated before. And it's like, if you have to put a bow tie on a character, you're like, ugh, I'm done. You know, or something like, you know, if you're like, oh, I have to draw the line for his pants every time, that's a nightmare. And it's like having to draw 85 bespoke dots, like, I, I can't even imagine it. Um, they made it hard for themselves. They, they could have made him Labrador. <laughs> and then every spot, you then have to draw how that spot moves in the next frame and keep like perspective and anatomy in mind while you're doing that. Would anyone like to guess how many individual spots there are in the movie? I'm just going to guess 101. That would be boring. <laughs> I'm going to say 10,000. <laughs> it's six and a half million spots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe my guess was a little bit conservative. <laughs> That's insane. So then Ken Anderson comes in and he says, well, if we're using this process for the characters, so we get this line work, we can see the animator's line work on screen, which, by the way, the animators loved. They said, oh, it's like, we can see our drawings on screen for the first time. Ken Anderson said, if we're using this style for the characters, how are we going to get the background to match? And basically, the backgrounds for this, or a lot of the backgrounds for this, start off as big blobs of colour in the vague shape of whatever it's going to be, like a building or an armchair or whatever, and then they use the Xerox process to put the detail on afterwards, and that's why it kind of looks like they're not colouring in the lines, almost. It's because the lines come in after the colour. And this is really cool to me because, I mean, we've talked about Ronald Searle, and I think maybe one of the reasons why Ronald Searle is a popular influence 
for animators is because of how difficult it is to capture his very like sketchy aesthetic in animation and that's something that disney had found when trying to adapt like mary blair's drawings like it's it's too hard to capture this very personal style with ink and paint but with the xerox process oh here we go it's a style that matches the designs almost exactly because you can draw anything and put it on the screen well and and that was so cool to me as a as an animator too because when I used to look at those like Mary Blair drawings, I was like, why didn't they make the movie look like that? That's so cool. Exactly. And, and in this one, they actually got the movie to look exactly like the drawings, which is awesome. So seeing as they spent so much work making all of these puppies and putting all the spots on all the Dalmatians, let's talk about those guys. Let's talk about Pongo, uh, Perdita. 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 <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> wow. Who is this guy? This is an embarrassment. <laughs> oh my God, I'll never work in this town again. No, that's I don't know how to pronounce it either. <laughs> I've already forgotten which way around it is. Well. Perdita. 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 I keep getting there wrong. Like Vegeta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Ooh, that's a good crossover. So Pongo, Perdita, all the puppies. What do you think of these central two? I loved their kind of meet cute in the park. The way that Pongo is trying to catch Perdita's, atten- Perdita's attention. Perdita! And also, oh my god. <laughs> we should just accept at this point. I'm going to get this wrong for the rest of the podcast. No, you could just edit it in. Perdita. <laughs> I mean, we had a whole episode where I pronounced the word hook differently every time when we did Peter Pan, so... <laughs> But it's a double meet-cute because it's sort of a, a meet-cute between the pups, but also a meet-cute between uh, Roger and Anita, which I thought was just a lovely, a lovely touch. And then we get to see something we haven't really seen before, which is like a married couple in a Disney movie. Because like all of these movies, if you look at like especially Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and Snow White, they end with the wedding and the characters don't even speak to each other in these like closing scenes, as we've noticed <laughs> when we've been watching these. So here we actually see what happens after the wedding. We start with the meet and then we get the wedding and then the rest of the movie is just this pair of relationships which are well drawn and well observed and play out like real relationships almost. Yeah, for all we know, the end of Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella, it's just like the graduate. They get on the bus (laughs) and they're like, what now? Well, and also in all those movies, there's no reason for these people to like each other in any they don't even have that scene it's just like well this person's beautiful and i'm a man so here we go (laughs) to be fair in this one it's like you have a dog and i have a dog and they're the same kind of dog (laughs) like they go from falling over in the park into the pond her being mad and him kind of styling it out in a kind of cool way to then like we're married now. And also, <laughs> in the foreground, the dogs are married too. <laughs> Which is an atrocity against man and God, I will say. <laughs> well, no, there were lines in the original script where the dogs were also repeating the wedding vows and they were taken out because they didn't want to offend Christians. <laughs> That's funny. The uh, The wedding night was also taken out of, of the dogs <laughs> and the adults. But I think because it's modern day London, we just have to assume that there are dates in between the park and the wedding. I think that's just yeah, a lie. Sure. <laughs> it's not like Sleeping Beauty where she wakes up and then it is literally immediately they get married. <laughs> we have to assume there's a little bit of something. They go for coffee, maybe. Go for dog walks. <laughs> also, I think that it's, you know, it's like one of the things that I think makes the movie work is you have that scene... It's like a very grounded, lovely scene of the dogs watching TV with their mom and dad. Nothing happens. 
but it just kind of makes you fall in love with the dogs. And also, you know, the puppies are cute and, and it makes the mom and dad love the puppies. They're sort of loving on each other the whole time. And, and so when they do get separated, you're really, you're like, they got to get these puppies back because <laughs> you see how much they love each other. I mean, my heart burst for those puppies, especially that moment. I mean, talk about pulling the emotional strings where they're like, one puppy didn't make it. And oh, I was like, yeah. Wait, what? I didn't know that was coming. And then he just sort of like rubs it back to life. Who knows if that's a thing? That was strange. That's a thing. Because I'm watching it thinking that can't be right. You just, who does that? Like you pick up a dog that you believe to be dead and just rub it like a lamp to see if it wakes back up. <laughs> But apparently that happened to one of Doggy Smith's dogs, and that's why it's in there. Like, that is true. When her dogs, one of whom was also named Pongo, obviously Dalmatians, when they had their first litter, one of them was the thought that was stillborn, so they give it a big old rub, and it it sprung back to life. So there we go. That's why we're not vets. (laughs) That's when Doggy Smith realized she was a sorcerer. Oh man. Uh, but yeah, they are super cute, those puppies. Let's talk about the TV for a sec, because we're talking about this as a very modern Disney movie. Um, it was released in 1961. It seems to take place in 1961 in kind of contemporary London. Uh, they have cars and all sorts. But the thing that really struck me, yeah, was people having TVs. And that it feels like the movie pays a lot of attention to what is on those TVs. There is sort of scripted TV stuff happening in the background of a lot of those scenes. It feels like, you know, just like a lot of the things in the movie, it feels really observed like it it's sort of played for laughs but it's like it just feels like what tv i think felt like in the 60s which is just you know pitch men talking directly to camera and like weird old theme songs and stuff and i think all that stuff made it feel more like even though they're dogs you're like oh i watch tv with my kids this feels familiar yeah it it feels like I, I'm kind of watching it wanting it to be a, like, oh, it's a satire of TV because that would kind of make it interesting. Like, oh, here's Disney and the making movies in the early years of television and thinking, oh, television's taking audiences away from movies and all of that. You know, it's a narrative that you often hear repeated in the history of cinema, but kind of not really. Like, there's a bit where Horace and Jasper are so distracted by watching What's My Crime that the dogs were able <laughs> to get away, but that's about it. It's not like kind of the Simpsons level of really attacking television as a medium and the effect that it supposedly has on audiences. I mean, Walt Disney was on What's My Line, which is the show that What's My Crime is taken aim at, so we can't have hated it that much. Yeah, that that struck me, because I, I wondered, like you, maybe this is a little subtle commentary on TV stuff, but yeah, as we've spoken about... Walt was all over the TV and he was using it to sell his films to people and things so it just made the whole thing feel very modern feel really distinct especially I think coming off the back of Sleeping Beauty which as well as just being otherworldly and fantasy was like medieval and I don't think I don't think we've encountered anything like that in any of these other films so far but okay let's get to the big stuff now because after we've met the puppies and all that we meet, for me, easily the most memorable and impactful character in this film, which is, of course, none other than Cruella de Vil, which we've had some pretty classic villains recently. We had Maleficent for Sleeping Beauty. Uh, obviously, way back, we had the Evil Queen. Cruella de Vil, man, she is a good baddie. Yeah, she's she's great. Well, and it's like, she's she's animated so... I think so much of what's like appealing about her... I mean, she's got that crazy voice... Um, I'm not sure who the actress is, but it's like, it's very, her voice is very captivating and she's like animated so beautifully. And that's also another thing that's cool about this era of Disney is that I think Disney did this for years, but 
there was like a key animator. I wish they did this like this now. I, I sort of tried, weekly tried to petition to do this on our movie and they told me no. <laughs> but next time, um, where they there's like a head animator for each character, which is really interesting because it makes the performances really um, uh, distinct and they all feel like they're of a piece. And Mark Davis did Corella DeVille and it's half of why she's so memorable is she like, the design is so interesting she looks so crazy. Her cheekbones are like, you know, breaking through windows. They're so pointy. <laughs> um, it's really wonderful. Uh, there he is. Nine-year-old man the week alarm. <laughs> it's Mark Davis. Oh my God, there's SWAT team breaking through the window <laughs> and they, they've got the words nine old men on their shirt. <laughs> nine of them. Oh my God, that's a great movie. The nine-year-old men on the SWAT team. <laughs> Get like Zack Snyder or Michael Bay to make that one. <laughs> Mark Ruffalo is Ollie Johnston. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I think us three animation nerds would all watch that. Uh, <laughs> we'll be first in line. So Mark Davis animated Cruella DeVille. He was the last of the nine-year-old men to join Disney. Started in 1935, assisting the legendary Grim Natwick on the character of Snow White. So that's a pretty big first gig to have like you are thrown in at the deep end on this crazy ambitious risky feature working on the main character a human as well which is like a a human in those kind of proportions hadn't really been done before either and mark davis who was an expert at drawing realistic animals also designed the characters for bambi and he animated cinderella's transformation sequence into the new dress which walt says was his favorite piece of animation ever and he designed and animated Aurora and Maleficent in Sleep and Beauty, which is off the wall. Like, the, the design <laughs> on Maleficent especially, that is something else. But his best work was still to come, because he did Cruella de Vil. He, he did an unusual number of frames on Cruella de Vil as well. Like, an assistant would normally animate three out of four frames on one of these movies, but... On this one, Mark Davis was doing one out of two, and the assistant was only doing one frame every other frame. So for a lead animator, he was doing an unusual number of frames. And yeah, you get that consistency in this character, and she makes such an impact. And she's got this huge coat on, which is a big deal as well. Like, every action that she makes has a follow-through action in the court. And this makes her, it like adds weight to a tiny little skeleton body. Like she's got this huge cocoon of fur around her, swinging around, and it swings wilder and wilder as the movie goes on, highlighting that growing mania. And, you know, she's got a handbag, she's got a cigarette holder. It's a lot of moving parts for one character, especially when you compare it to that iconic but like monolithic silhouette of Maleficent that doesn't really change, doesn't really move in the same way. It's not as dynamic. And then you can see the range that this guy has. Two villains, two iconic villains, but who move in very different ways and have very different visual appearances to them. I mean, he's amazing. I didn't know that he did Maleficent, but he's so he's so amazing at externalizing what the character is on the inside. Like, like that is, I think, what's exciting about Cruella de Vil is that she looks like this crazy personification of evil and the same with Maleficent where it's like that all of the sort of evil that's inside of her is sort of like really easily readable in a in a clear and and really powerful way on the outside and taking this again like tiny paper thin woman and making her like a threat to people like Horace and Jasper like you have to believe that they're terrified of her even though I think they could probably take her in a fight you know <laughs> a couple of big guys you have to believe that they're terrified of her and, and he gives her that weight and that power as well 
But this was the last film he animated on. And after this, he went on to become a top Imagineer at Disneyland. So he used his skills as an animator to help work on some of the first really sophisticated audio animatronics at the park. Um, like, you know, Mr. Lincoln, for example. Great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Not one that I've experienced myself because... I don't know, it's just not up my alley. <laughs> it's wild, I will yeah. say. It's one of the craziest things I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> just to sort of say, like, one, it's this fully animatronic Lincoln, and it looks gorgeous. I mean, Mark Davis, he's great. But, like, in the version that I saw, they had these 3D, quote-unquote, headphones, where you would you would went on this journey where you were a Union soldier that gets shot, and then Lincoln breathes into your ear and you could feel his breath in your 3D headphones and you're about to die. And he says, you've got to live, boy. You've got to live. And you could feel his breath in your ear and he <laughs> breathes you back to life. It's insane. They, I think they shut this ride down after they tried the 3D headphones and people were horrified. That feels like a post Mark Davis edition. So. <laughs> yeah, so 100%. I don't think he planned that. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well, wasn't expecting that. It looks like we do have to go on great moments with Mr. Lincoln when we make our Disneyland trip, Ben. You should, it's wild. Yeah, okay, I mean, how do you follow that? He also did Pirates of the Caribbean, which sounds positively mundane, next to the ghost of <laughs> Abraham Lincoln telling me to get up, which is now what I'm going to hear before I wake up every morning. I'm going to set that Good. as my alarm on my phone. <laughs> wake up. Yeah, I'll record it for you to the best of my memory, and you can just uh, <laughs> hear that every morning. Oh, anyway, Mark Davis, Nine Old Man of the Week. Uh... Amazing. I mean, I learned so many things there. But I feel like our business with Corella is far from over. So yeah, let's talk more Corella. I loved her entrance. The way that she kind of screeches around the corner in her massive car is just like such a flex. All of her dialogue, I love how like with Maleficent, she is just relentlessly, unapologetically evil. And that comes through, obviously, in, as Sam was saying, in the way that she's animated, but also her dialogue as well. That the way that she kind of insults Roger and Anita in their place where she's like this horrid little house is your dream palace and the way that she talks about the puppies when she wants to make the coach she's saying do what you like with them drown them she's so <laughs> callous don't you have any chloroform she says it's like she's talking about murdering puppies great delivery as well it's uh, Betty Lou Gerson is the voice actress and my favorite line is when she's desperately trying to write a check and the ink from the pen is spewing everywhere and she goes blast this wretched wretched pen <laughs> like just so much rage directed at, at an object you know which i mean we've all been there especially in the age of tech but uh yeah, it, it it comes through and then spraying ink all over Roger. And I love the like maleficent green smoke that she spews everywhere as well, just filling every room that she enters from this. I mean, none of my family smoked growing up, so I thought that was what smoking was for a while. <laughs> like like, oh it, it's gonna be green. Why why <laughs> do I not see green smoke in the real world? And I never smoked since, so... It worked. It yeah. worked. <laughs> if that was um, their intention, to put kids off smoking, it worked. And, of course, she has her henchmen as well, Jasper and Horace. I love the introduction of those guys, because, again, you have this amazing shot uh, where they're waiting in the car, 
and it's a shot of the wing mirror of the car that's kind of cracked and you have a kind of horrible claw hand clawing over the mirror it's just everything about these guys especially Cruella but even this moment with Horace and Jasper it's just like grotesque kind of creaturey imagery yeah well they're they're animated really um I think everything that's one of the things that's great about these movies is like along with the caricature drawings and stuff they get to caricature movement and the way people you know feel in the world so you're like getting that's like one of the things that's magical about animation is that you not only get the information that is presented to you like if you're watching a movie and someone's standing there maybe they look mean or something but with animation you can bend every single part of the from the lighting to the you know to the way that you're the line quality and the drawing and stuff and those those Disney animators really use movement to make those guys feel sli- even slimier than they are. And even their car moves in this like kind of grotesque way, um, which is really funny. Yeah, so I, I wanted to ask Sam about the car because the car looked very 3D to me. Did they use a different technique than we've seen in any of these films? Just the way it moves has like a different sort of dimension to everything else. So what they did with this and with Cruella's car as well is they built like paper models or like like white card models of the cars. So they had actual 3D models and then they filmed them and all they, they drew like black lines around them to give the outline that would eventually show up in the film. They filmed them performing these motions and then they Xeroxed that into the animated frame with the rest of the cells. So it is this very strange like pseudo stop motion effect. Then there's this scene which really jumped out at me when I was watching it this time and I'd never noticed before and I was like, I need to know how that was done because it looks so different to everything else. When Cruella in the final chase crashes into a bank of snow and you know snow covers the car, I was like, what is the deal with that? And they chucked one of these models into a pile of sand and filmed that and then use the photocopier to put it in the cell. And it, it looks like it when you watch it. It looks, it really stands out from everything else. It's worth watching the, there's like a making of, if you just Google making of 101 Dalmatians, that is so wild because I've sort of worked in TV and typically the way they do TV vehicles, you know, most of the characters in, are, are, are drawn by a human, but they do, they do all the vehicles in 3D now. And when I watched 101 Dimensions, I'm like, is this a, computer generated this was the 60s what's happening and it's like so ingenious this is like of iWorks again or whatever it's so ingenious the way that they drew lines on a car like even seeing the making of pictures is just like really wild like i would i would encourage anyone to check that out I love that with these films, rewatching them and thinking of the sense of invention that went behind making them, that they are coming up with these techniques that just form the basis for everything that we watch now and kind of take for granted. But yeah, when you look at what they did and how they solved some of these problems, it's incredible. Before we wrap up on Cruella de Vil, we can't not talk about the song, which, I mean, we've had a lot of great Disney songs in, in recent episodes, and there aren't that many songs really in 101 Dalmatians. This is more or less it. But my God, is Cruella Deville a really, really great song? And they do this really smart thing where before we get the full version of it, we have that construct that that Roger is a musician, that he's sort of tinkering away with this melody. So by the time Cruella comes in and you get the full version of that song, it's already been stuck in your head. They've already planted <laughs> that seed. It's so smart. It's also good storytelling in that it's you're really hyping up the villain before that you see them. 
So you have this like really excited expectation of what they are and you know that people hate her for some reason and you don't know why. So then when she she's introduced, it, it's like really it's sort of like a more more powerful, you know, like whenever you see a movie and people are like, oh, no, this guy is, you know, people are like they're bringing in the wolf or whatever. But also uh, one thing I will point out, one of my critiques about the movie is like I found it strange that this song about uh, this man's hatred for a specific woman that isn't famous becomes a number one smash hit on the radio (laughs) that bought them a new house. But I I excused it because the rest of the movie was great. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a weird song. They're like, have you heard this really catchy song about a horrible woman? (laughs) I mean, look, it happens. Like, Jay-Z and Nas have pulled it off, you know? Like, Tupac. <laughs> it, it happens. Like, songs about really specific beefs yeah, <laughs> can become true. hits. But it doesn't feel like a very 1960s phenomenon, does it? Well, Nas and Roger share a lot. You know, there's a big Venn diagram there between Nas, Jay-Z, and Roger from Wonder Woman Dalmatians. <laughs> Corella Deville is, like, the original diss track. This is where <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. She's from the East Coast of London... He's from the West Coast. <laughs> well, who is listening to this song? Who do they think that it's about? Maybe it's because Cruella DeVille is such an absurd name. They assume it's a fictional character. Yeah, yeah. That's, to. That's... It's like like Bad Bad Leroy Brown or somebody. Like, yeah, he's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. He's not a real guy. It's like, oh, yeah, she, she's called Cruella DeVille and she <laughs> lives in, in a hell hole. Okay, yeah, sure thing. A likely story. I love Roger, by the way. He's a real kind of contemporary hipster, isn't he? And he's mad talented. He's like a bohemian musician. He's got the piano. He's got like the trumpet. He's got a trombone. He can play anything, this guy. And he writes lyrics too, almost freestyle, like totally off the cuff. And like anyone who lives around Regent's Park, he's posh as hell. (laughs) Is that right? I wish I could live near Primrose Hill and howl at the night sky. Speaking of which, when Corella finally gets her hands on the puppies... That brings us to one of my favourite sequences in this film, which is the Twilight Bark has such a mythical quality. And I love that there's that line in the setup for this where it's like, where have the puppies gone? Where are they? The London dogs will know is the line. And it felt like something out of John Wick to me. You know, there's this, where they're like, there's this crazy like underground network. There's the Bowery King who knows all the pigeons. That's what the Twilight Bark was to me. It's an all-dog alert. They go up onto Primrose Hill in Regent's Park and woof into the night, uh, hoping for any word on where the puppies have gone. It was just like a really lovely setup, a really kind of cool sequence that adds a sense of scale of this sound travelling outside of London, but that also is mad because you get five or so minutes of this movie, which is just dogs barking at each other. It like goes on and on and I on. I found that puzzling, personally. <laughs> I was like, is this goose coming back? We're really getting to know this goose. Um, But it it was, I I do agree with you that it was like, it was cool and it sort of built a little bit of a world and introduced you to these sort of strange military animals. I found it interesting, even though it it was like for modern day, I was like, this thing, this is like a nine minute sequence. (laughs) Yeah, we've talked a lot before about how so many of these early Disney movies were like devoting a bit too much time to shenanigans or like antics like there's oh yeah. now there's just going to be a big old stretch of antics and i think they've mainly escaped that by this point but this is maybe the closest we're coming in dalmatians we'll get little cameos from jock and peg and lady from lady and the giant which makes zero chronological sense <laughs> like you're trying to build the lore of the disney dog cinematic universe it's not quite working out but what struck me was like 
if we're trying to map this dog society onto human society, like, imagine if we had a method of communication that was just screaming things at the top of your lungs across <laughs> London. <laughs> like, let's All get right. to the highest point in the park, <laughs> and let's just shout, Hey! Has anybody seen my kids? Like, it'd just be weird. And then someone would hear it, and then they'd shout it, and the chain would go on. Maybe this is how they did things before telephones, but seems you know, stressful and <laughs> intrusive into people's lives. And noisy for the neighbours, right? Because uh, one of my favourite shots in this moment is um, where you get this shot across the whole city of London. You've got St Paul's Cathedral, you've got all the kind of light-up neon signs. But yeah, the reverberation of this sound is causing chaos for <laughs> basically the entire southeast of England. All for just 15 stupid little Dalmatians. Let them die! <laughs> I want to get some sleep! <laughs> <laughs> Cruella Reander over here. <laughs> I have killed uh, upwards of 98 puppies, um, just FYI, <laughs> full disclosure. And the mad thing about the Twilight Bark is, it works. Because of that, they find out that the puppies are being held at Hell Hall, who would have thought it, under the cruel hand of Cruella Deville. And this is where I mentioned that we might bring up Fleischer cartoons, because something else that's on the TV here seemed to be like a Fleischer-inspired, like, wiggly thingy. That is not the Fleischers. That is Disney Ooh. themselves. That is uh, Flowers and Trees, which was the first... Technicolor Disney cartoon also won the first Academy Award for Best Animated Short, I believe. So that's an interesting throwback. I think obviously there's a bit of irony that it's being shown on the TV in black and white. Maybe that's a little bit of a dig at TV. Look at the limited technological <laughs> capabilities of TV. You can't even watch flowers and trees in colour. But I also think it's cool that uh, Horace and Jasper are just chilling out watching classic animation <laughs> on TV. Well, I think, I think too, you know, sort of having made one of these, you kind of think when you're a kid that they have, people just like have unlimited time and money. But I, we had to do a lot of things in our movie where it's like, I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, we need something for the TV. I don't know. We got this forest and trees thing. I don't know. Whatever. Um, you know, like I like I don't think they would make it that flippantly, but like we have a bunch of stuff in our movie where we're using like the bow and arrow from Alice in Wonderland, the live action version, or like just because we needed a crossbow and they're like, We don't have any money for a crossbow. We got a crossbow with a heart on it from Alice in Wonderland. And then we're like, uh yeah, sure. They're like, we just won't show the heart and we won't get sued. By the way, if anyone from Disney's listening you never heard this. They burn this tape. <laughs> um, but but it's like, I wouldn't be surprised if they just had it. But, you know, there also was probably a good reason to. That's amazing. That's such a great little tidbit for the Mitchells versus the Machines. I'm going to look out for that crossbow next time I watch it. <laughs> but yeah, what do you guys think of this sort of action finale? Because it feels like a lot of the Disney movies we've watched recently settle into that rhythm. They do lots of nice kind of character stuff, but they find a way to build it into like an action sequence towards the end and there's some really great tension i think when they're creeping through the the different areas of, of hell hall uh hiding away different puppies kind of falling over falling into lines of sight i have, i thought that was really fun yeah i think i think it's a really nice sequence i i also think that like because the threat is like actual death and even if even though they don't really kill a puppy in the beginning the fact that they almost do sort of signals to you that maybe something bad can happen in this world, even though it's a Disney movie. So it's like, I feel like it's a little more tense than it would have been. You know, the guys have like guns and they're like, she's like murder them, <laughs> you know, like drown them or whatever. I also thought it was really wonderful after that. It's sort of in the in-between scene that they take a little bit of time and give you a little bit of relief. And just, they have that moment where those like cows are nice to them and give them milk. It's like a nice pacing thing, but it also 
just makes everything more visceral because they're like, oh, they're outside, they're cold, they can't walk any further, and then you get a little bit of relief. It's like a, it's just like a nice grounding, humanizing moment. Yeah, because you feel the threat from the environment at that point as yeah. well. The, the, all those shots of them trudging through the snow and the puppies are so small, you feel the threat. Yeah, in that situation. I think the fact that the dogs are drinking milk direct from the cows is probably another one of those abominations against God <laughs> that we talked about before. But I was just like, is that right? Can that, is that... <laughs> I mean, we do it, I suppose, people, but we don't do it direct. We don't do it straight. Well, some of us? No, 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 no. We've never done that. No one, no one on this call has ever done that. <laughs> but yeah, this movie, I think because of its contemporary setting, because it's not in a fantasy world, even though we had like some really dramatic action scenes and things like Sleeping Beauty, the threat here does feel more real because these are actual criminals with guns who you might run into in real life might hit you with a bat or with a big pointy stick kind of thing that jasper's got and they look creepy i mean you were talking before about the way in which these characters were animated and how much attention is given to the way that they move jasper the big lanky guy he's almost like max shrek and nosferatu or like um <laughs> Like Conrad Veidt and Dr. Caligari or something. Like these really spidery, spindly movements that make you think, oh yeah, some dog's going to get killed. And the way that the whole environment of Hell Hall gets washed out in this like red colour scheme as well, with just the yeah, white of the dogs standing out against it. Oh, you get that awesome moment where Pongo and Perdita are like action heroes. They burst through the window like snarling and all the whole room's red. It was like... These cute dogs are kind of badass. (laughs) They do a nice job as well towards the end of adding that kind of ticking clock element where all of the little puppies are made up in soot so that they look like Labradors and they're trying to get them all onto the truck before it leaves for London. And meanwhile, Cruella's kind of stalking around, had a nice kind of escalation of the tension there. And it leads to this car chase, basically, with Cruella doing a crazy driving around the snowy streets. And again, just amazing animation on Cruella here. It kind of reminded me of the Headless Horseman chase at the end of Ichabod and Mr. Toad in that when you see her, she has gone fully demonic. Her kind of eyes are glowing red. Her car is spewing fire. She is like this hellish vision chasing down the dogs. I like that they have just a regular delivery man react to that the way that you would. Like, lady, what the F? What are you doing? (laughs) Like, you're trying to run me off the road. Your eyes are glowing red. Like, it was, it sort of, I thought it grounded it, even though it was, um, such an insane moment, but it was really effective. And she doesn't really get any comeuppance, right? I guess her car is ruined and she has to deal with the fact that there's a number one song devoted to attacking (laughs) her, but that's pretty much as far as it goes. Like, she's a bit mad. She didn't get the court, whatever. She's not killed and she easily could have been. She could easily have driven that car off a cliff and crashed and died, but I guess not. If they were going another round on that, on the movie, I think you could do a better comeuppance for her. Because, like, I think the audience is hungry for it. She's, like, trying to murder puppies the whole time. You want to see something bad happen to her. And she seems, yeah, she seems fine. Yeah, she could maybe break some bones or something. Doesn't have to yeah, be a exactly. death, but... She has that great line delivery as well where she shouts at Horace and Jasper, you imbeciles! She's got, like, <laughs> such a great delivery. But it leads us to this happy ending where all of the dogs make it back to London... As we've not mentioned so far, there are now 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> they were going to oh, say yeah. 15. Oh, yeah, we skipped over that pretty important we development. the other, what, 84 Dalmatians, I think. Uh, which, who knows how she got all these other Dalmatian puppies that are all kind of the same age at the same time. Who knows? But I love the kind of crazy logic that Roger and Anita go 
screw it. We'll just have these 101 <laughs> dogs. Why not? It's like a very nice ending. And I, yeah, it's like, I think they, I, I bet they came up with the title first. And they're like, hmm. Because I, I initially, in the beginning of the movie, was like, is, is this dog going to have 101 puppies? Like, this would be a nightmare. Like, she would be in the hospital or whatever. So I, I bet they just had a good name, and they're like, ah, we'll find the other puppies somewhere else. When the nanny or the maid keeps popping out, she's saying, no, 12, no, 14 puppies now. And she just keeps going. She's like, 98, 99. <laughs> yeah, it's a six-hour movie. And then where they're going to keep them all? Dalmatian Plantation, which gives Roger the opportunity to write another song, which will surely be another smash hit, despite <laughs> being about the really weird, specific intricacies of this one random guy's life. Which, as I say it, I realise that is Taylor Swift's whole career, isn't it? But, it's, again, it can happen. Okay, so with our main discussion over, that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from, digging up all the kind of weird, creepy stuff they decided to leave out. And while there's plenty of threat in this film from Cruella, it's kind of a mostly wholesome adventure. Sam, did they ever go darker in the book? Not really. This isn't like a kind of one of the many Grimm's fairy tale adaptations where they took out various horrific incidents. It's fairly similar to the book. Most of the changes that Bill Pete made with the screenplay were like to streamline it. So, for example, Pongo's wife in the original is called Mrs., which is like kind of a bit weird and feels a little bit sexist. Now, Mrs., <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's a, I don't know if that's a thing in the states, Mike. But over here, if you were saying like, oh, the Mrs., that's like a kind of casually sexist way sure, to refer yeah. to your wife, and. So Pedita is a separate character who was a stray dog that they brought in to help nurse the puppies. It's like, oh, we've got more puppies than Pedita can feed, so we need to get a stray dog to... Which, again, feels kind of weird and exploitative. And also, we've got more dogs than we need, so Bill Pete got rid of that. Uh, Also, in this version, Roger was a genius accountant rather than a musician. And he had wiped out Britain's national debt and therefore was granted a lifelong tax exemption by the government. Weird. That seems like an unnecessarily extraneous plot (laughs) in this film about rescuing dogs from a crazy lady who wants to make a coat of Dalmatian skins. I feel like someone said to Doggy Smith, but how can they afford all the Dalmatians? And instead of thinking, pop it, she was like, oh, okay, lifelong tax exemption for genius accounting. (laughs) But this is just the first of two novels that Doja Smith would write about these 101 Dalmatians. There is a sequel to this novel which came out after the Disney movie and which Disney very noticeably did not choose to adapt for either of the sequels that they made to the story because they made the live-action Glenn Close movie which then had 102 Dalmatians as its sequel and then they made 101 Dalmatians 2 Patches London Adventure, or like one of the direct DVD things. Neither of these films adapted The Starlight Barking, which is the name of the 1967 novel that Dodie Smith wrote to follow up 101 Dalmatians. And this is an absolute travesty. And Mike, I don't know if there's any way that you can make this happen, that you can team up with Disney somehow to adapt a movie based on the novel that I'm about to describe, or just, you know, go off and do it. Just take the story and and make your own version without telling them, you know, because I want to see this in the animated medium. One morning the Dalmatians wake up to find that everyone in the world except for the dogs is asleep and cannot be awoken. 
Okay. (laughs) Wait. So we're in the realm of science fiction already. Yeah, I'm already in. I love it. Well, strap in. The dogs also find that they're all telepathic, telekinetic, and can fly. (laughs) I love this. (laughs) So dogs are the only creatures that are awake, and they've also got like x-men powers okay telepathic <laughs> telekinetic flights that can communicate with their brains with each other and that can communicate with like other dogs across the country Lucky and stuff turn like silver that. like colossus <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile before all this happened one of the dalmatian puppies cad pig was adopted by Roger's mate, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom okay because Roger's this genius accountant and the Prime Minister is adopted cat pig right so because all the humans are incapacitated cat pig takes over as acting prime minister which makes her the... <laughs> which makes her the first dog and also the first female prime minister of the united kingdom uh, progressive all right okay so she assembles an administration staffed by the cabinet's dogs and summons her parents, Pongo and Mrs. in this case, to help her. And they bring the whole squad of Dalmatians to Parliament to help Cadpig run the country and figure out what's going on. The dogs assume that this is somehow Cruella's doing, because she's still alive, she's chilling out in Hell Hall, and they think it's her fault, so they send a dog militia to her house to murder her. <laughs> Look, she deserves her comeuppance. Yeah, the, the, get the, it in this movie, like the dog militia, should she have. took the note. We want blood, <laughs> and we want telepathic flying dogs. I personally wrote that letter, so I'm glad she listened. <laughs> but when they get there, they find that, like all the other humans, Cruella is also asleep. So they decide to leave her be. So who is it? Who did it? Well, a strange voice takes over the airwaves, takes over the TVs and the radio stations to summon all the dogs in England to Trafalgar Square. What, so it's going to be like that scene in Cats where all of the horrible human hybrid cats are standing on uh, Nelson's column. Well, wait till you see who's going to be standing on Nelson's column, because when they get there, they are met by Sirius, Lord of the Dog Star. What? Dodie, pull it together! <laughs> Sam, before you continue, I love that you were like, so she wrote this one after the film came out, and I was there thinking, oh, maybe she incorporated some of the ideas from the Disney adaptation (laughs) into... No. No, she incorporated some of the ideas from 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) (laughs) She incorporated some of the ideas from, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Some of the ideas from The Day the Earth Stood Still. (laughs) So Sirius, Lord of the Dog Star, appears on Nelson's column, and he is... Lonely, for starters, because he's the only dog in space. And he has foreseen a nuclear war between the humans, right? It's obviously in the middle of Cold War tensions. Dodie! So this just became Watchmen. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Watchdogs! There it is! Dog to Manhattan! <laughs> yeah! Hell yeah! <laughs> Mike, when are we making this movie? <laughs> I'm Googling this just because I think you might be winding us up here. This sounds too insane to be true. So he's decided that he wants to take all the dogs in the world into space to escape nuclear annihilation. (laughs) (laughs) Where they will live a life of peace and happiness among the stars. And for some reason, Pongo gets the final decision on this. Like all the other dogs are like, oh, we'll let Pongo speak for us. What's it, not Cat Pig? Not the Prime Minister? No, she defers to her dad. And Pongo... After consulting 
with some other dogs to, you know, really get the sense of the public opinion on this, decides that dogs love humans too much to go. Like, the dogs all love their owners, all the dogs who don't have owners are really looking forward to eventually getting owners, and they don't want to give up that opportunity. So they decide they're not going to go to space, and apparently it's an all-or-nothing deal. Like, if you're a dog who really wants to go to space, you've just got to go with the consensus on this one, right? (laughs) So yeah, you're there thinking, Pongo has basically killed me by making this decision. Yeah, is he, he's like, let's die among the nukes? What's happening? (laughs) Pongo (laughs) is a war criminal. (laughs) So Sirius goes back to space alone, and he says, I'm going to take away all your superpowers in the morning, but I'll give you just enough time to fly home to your owners. And all of the stray dogs fly to Battersea Dogs Home, <laughs> where they await adoption. And that is how the novel ends. No, actually, this is actually just page five. I'm reading along. <laughs> There's 89 more maniacal pages. No, I'm kidding. Oh, man. That is incredible. There we go. So, the mid two goddamn Dalmatian sequels. There are two different Disney sequels to 101 Dalmatians. None of them feel telepathy. No. None of them have Sirius the dog star. <laughs> That is incredible. Every time we get to discarded, Sam's like, we've got the craziest one we're ever going to have. And I thought that was going to be seven-day-old forever baby Peter Pan burying babies in Kensington Gardens. But I think this actually might be the best one yet. I am pretty thoroughly uh, excited about what I just heard. I mean, it doesn't sound too far from... It sounds more like the Mitchells versus the Machines than it does 101 Dalmatians. It's certainly maniacal. So Amazon has now just sold all three of its copies of the Oh, wow. Well, moving on from that, uh, Sam, let's go back to the much less insane 101 Dalmatians. Um, What what did critics say about this one at the time? Was it a critical hit? I mean, uh, people were really snarky about Lady and the Tramp and didn't really gel with Sleeping Beauty either. So did they get people back on side with this one? Yeah, people liked it. People liked this one. Disney's back on top, baby. Again, we've got this peak and trough situation. It really does seem like it's a hit and then a miss, and then a hit and then a miss. And this was a really big hit. Time magazine said that it's the wittiest, most charming, least pretentious cartoon feature that Walt Disney has ever made. Which, especially with that least pretentious comment, maybe feels like a direct dig towards something like Sleep and Beauty. Or going back a little bit further to Bambi, these are the kind of movies that people saw as a bit pretentious. The New York Herald Tribune says that it is in the province of sophisticated humour that Mr. Disney is a late arrival, but a welcome one. 101 Dalmatians comes up with some engaging spoofs of the British spy thriller genre, which, okay, I guess it does, and does it without for a moment compromising its appeal to the young. So people like this. It's like, okay, Disney's back on form. None of them knew at the time that Disney couldn't stand this movie, that Disney hated the look of it, that Disney disowned the artists who worked on this movie. And, of course, it cost a lot less than Sleeping Beauty. It cost $3.6 million, which is less than two-thirds of what Sleeping Beauty cost. And it was a huge hit. It made $14 million domestic, which is massive by the standards of, of these movies. So this was the biggest Disney film to this point. It was the first animated movie to make more than $10 million. It was the first to outgross Snow White on its first run. So, big, big, big hit. Save the studio again. Yay! So after this one, there's no more, hey, maybe we should just sack off the whole animated movies thing. I'm still shocked that they were going to do that. That's mad. Uh, I mean, that, no, Ben, that's not the last time they were going to do that. Yeah, no, they, that. The, that, that's the whole history of Disney is 
people tr- money people trying to destroy animation. But surely this is going to fund uh, the next little wave of movies, the, the sheer amount of money they pulled in from this. And not least because now they've got the Xerox process, so movies aren't going to get as expensive as Sleeping Beauty was for a while either. Are we going to see this style coming through because of that process becoming part of the Disney style? Yeah, absolutely. To varying degrees of success, but the next whole crop, like the next 20 years worth, really, are using a very similar style. And I think it's debatable whether it works as well as it does in Dalmatians, because what they have in Dalmatians is a context which feels really suited to it, because it's set in contemporary London. And arguably, when you transfer that to medieval England or to the jungles of India, it doesn't feel quite as simpatico with the context that they're trying to put forward. But yeah, this is a well which they went back to over and over again in terms of how these things were going to be produced. So what about our ratings then? Let's start with you, Mike. What would you give this movie? What does this movie mean to you? And uh, yeah, would you recommend people who haven't seen 101 Dalmatians to check it out? Yeah, um, I, I sure. Absolutely. It's really charming. I think especially if you're into animation or into Disney movies, it's a great movie to watch. I think uh, I would rate it. I would rate it highly. And, you know, the craft is like undeniably high and it's very charming. So I would say definitely check it out. And also I'm I'm currently looking up Amazon reviews for the Twilight Bark and whatever it is, the Starlight Barking, and it is getting trashed. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd go no on the Starlight Bark or whatever it is. And yes on 101 Dalmatians. Oh man, we need to read that book and we need to weigh out those reviews with some That's a bonus edition about this. Yeah, exactly. We'll do a special episode just about that. We'll do an episode per page. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole new podcast, Mike. We've already signed you up for every episode. I'm in. This I'm is in. A, this is a long term. Someone says the Phantom Menace of children's books. <laughs> <laughs> really going for the throat. Uh, Sam, what's your review of this one? Yeah, good. <laughs> it's great it's one that i loved very much as a kid it's one that maybe feels it's i think it's one of those movies that feels more momentous when you're watching them all in order and i think to just think about the canon of disney movies it feels a little bit less contemporary than something like the jungle book which when we get that that's like a really big favorite of mine i think that incorporated elements of contemporary culture really well this feels a little bit less radical than that in some ways but certainly watching it in context and also just looking at like those backgrounds and those character designs as well put it really highly up my list. So I think I don't want to give away two five star ratings on this podcast because it's making me look like a little fanboy who just <laughs> loves all these Disney movies. Who just has, no has a podcast faculties. about Disney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What kind of guy? I'm a professional, damn it. I'm an objective <laughs> academic and as such I will give this movie a paltry four and a half stars. <laughs> yeah, I really like this one. I have to say, it didn't quite get me in the same way that Lady and the Tramp did. But the, for me, there are certain elements of this that are just so successful. I love the way it looked, the way it felt. That change in art style just totally worked for me. Cruella, completely iconic. Uh, that song is amazing. And for me, it's really just the second half of the film, the plot sort of shifts gears and you get all the barnyard animals and you spend a lot of time with the goose for some reason which didn't kind of totally work for me but 
for the most part, I really enjoyed it. It's super charming. And yeah, like you were saying, especially watching these in order, I'm loving this whole process of just kind of seeing how their style shifts and changes over time. And it just feels so distinct to everything else. We said that obviously just in the last couple of weeks with Lady and the Tramp and Sleeping Beauty. But once again, across those three movies, it just feels and looks different every time. And I absolutely love that about it. So I think four stars from me, lost a star for the amount of goose in the runtime, unlike Top Gun. But yeah, I would recommend people check this out. It's a lovely, lovely film. Okay, so normally now we would do the Lasting Legacy part of the show, but we are going to come back and record that slightly later because as we record this, I have seen Cruella. Spoiler alert, I thought it was really good. Sam has not yet seen Cruella. So we're going to come back and do this section of the show well, I mean, as you're listening to this, you're about to hear us talk about it. This is us from the future, sadly, without Mike. But hey, if you want to come back at some point and just talk about Cruella, you're very welcome to do so. But yeah, enjoy. This is me and Sam from the future talking about Cruella and the other parts of The Lasting Legacy. Hello, it is Ben and Sam from the future, as promised, as foreseen, as predicted by past Ben and Sam. Obviously, to you, this is all still past Ben and Sam, because obviously we can't be recording this after you've already listened to it. That would be crazy. We would have to have invented some insane time machine for that to happen. But it has been a couple of weeks since we were recording with Mike, and what a fun time that was. But now we're able to delve into the lasting legacy. Sam has finally seen Cruella. We are in a glorious future where Sam has seen the latest live-action Disney spin-off, whatever you want to call it, Sadly, we're also in a future where Sam currently has coronavirus, so if he sounds slightly different, he's been having a rough couple of days. Sam, are are you okay? I'm alright, I just want to take this opportunity to send a message to Sam from the past. Don't go to that one burrito restaurant, alright? It wasn't worth it, okay? It was delicious, but it wasn't worth the consequences. I'm on an upswing, I think, at the minute in corona terms. I'm past the worst of it. Uh, I'm still sweating heavily as we record this. If I look like I stink, Ben, it's because I probably do. But I can't tell because I've got no sense of smell because I've got coronavirus. But one thing I can do is talk about the movie Cruella, I think. Yes. I think I can do that. <laughs> uh, well, if you're up to it, if you're if you're feeling good enough to do it, let's start with Cruella. What did you think of Cruella? I liked Cruella. Cruella is the best live-action Disney whatever that there has been. Full stop. Oh, wow. No, no, no. It's not not better than Pirates of the Caribbean 1. It's not better than Mary Poppins. It's not better than Robert Altman's Popeye movie. Which I know you are a huge fan of. (laughs) You rewatched that recently. But So in terms of the live-action remakes or redos or reimaginings of the Walt Disney Animation Studios classics... This, what, it outstrips... I'm trying to think of the good ones. Cinderella, yeah, I think, is pretty it? good. Jungle Book is a really good one. I quite like The Lion King. We're going to talk about this when we get there. Whoa, I didn't know that about you, Ben. Yeah. And obviously, I really like Dumbo as well. But yes, so Cruella is the best of all of them for you, is it? Yeah, quite handily, because it's the one that justifies its own existence the most. It's the one that seems like it has its own unique point of view. 
mainly that comes through in the setting and the crazy costumes. So it's relocated the story of Cruella de Vil, the origin story of Cruella de Vil, so to speak, in 1970s punk rock context and made her a budding fashion designer coming into conflict with Emma Thompson's The Baroness, who represents the old world of fashion. And that in itself makes for some really cool visuals and some really interesting stuff that really feels completely on its own, set aside from the Dalmatians universe. It's almost billed as a prequel, I think, but it's not, really, is it? Like, this, without spoiling too much, this Cruella de Vil is not the Cruella de Vil from 101 Dalmatians. It's its own thing. Yeah, and that is what I really liked about this as well. Obviously, in the last episode, we spoke about Maleficent and how Maleficent it was trying to t- tie itself in knots, retelling the Sleeping Beauty story from a different vantage point and changing elements. And I think I referred to that as kind of a remix. This just feels like, hey, let's take this great character and just make a film about the younger version of this character that doesn't have to tie into anything else. It doesn't have to tell the 101 Dalmatian story. It doesn't have to really even tie into the timing and the setting. Obviously, the animated movie that we've been talking about is set in the early 60s. This is a prequel to that character, but set in the 70s. It doesn't even really line up with the like Glenn Close 90s live-action remake. It just is its own thing and gets to tell its own story and just do something really fun and unique with this character that has little sprinklings of Dalmatianiness in there, but that doesn't. It's not trying to bend over backwards to try and be something else. It's just trying to tell a cool and interesting and stylish story with this iconic character. There are a couple of nods towards the eventual Dalmatian story. There's a couple of gestures, especially towards the end, at how this version might turn into something resembling the original. But I thought those were pretty weak, and I think that would have been better off left unsaid and just had this as its own universe because now it looks like we're getting a Cruella sequel, a Tuella, and I don't really know what that's going to be because logic would dictate that Cruella 2 is 101 Dalmatians, but as we've said, that doesn't seem likely to be the case. So as a nerd who's very into things like continuity and timelines, as you might have noticed from my hair pulling with regards to the Cinderella franchise and the, the Tinkerbell universe... There were things in this that I found quite annoying when I'm trying to square those circles and make this into a prequel in my mind, and it doesn't work. But taken on its own, pretty good. One thing I would like to point out, Ben, you might find this interesting, Anita's surname in this movie is Anita Darling. Right, and in we're going to talk about this in a minute, but in the 90s live-action 101 Dalmatians, Cruella is always saying, Anita Darling, and it's doing that Lady in the Tramp thing again. Exactly, yeah. Uh, what dog movie is this, Sam? So in Lady in the Tramp, we weren't sure whether Darling's name was Darling or if that was just a thing that her husband calls her, so that's what the dog thinks she's called. And then we also pointed out in Peter Pan that surnames are actually Darling. And then in this... Anita's surname is Darling, her name is Anita Darling, that's not just something that Cruella calls her, and so that just blows that wide open as well. It's just a phrase that Cruella says, she says Anita Darling, that's her affectation, we don't need an origin story for that. And now we just have an insane amount of Disney darlings. It's impossible to keep track of them all. But for me, the highlight of this film, right, I thought Emma Stone was great as Cruella. I think she gives a really great performance. But Emma Thompson as the Baroness, as this sort of bigger bad for Cruella to face off against, 
is just sublime and amazing in every scene of this film and any sequence that's the two of them together is just brilliant and i think i really appreciated the fact that instead of trying to make cruella good it does stir up some sympathy for cruella but at the same time they just create somebody worse for her to play off against rather than trying to retroactively make her a good person like they did with maleficent I thought that worked a lot better as an approach to how to tell a villain story where you still have to you have to feel something warm towards the central character but at the same time they haven't necessarily rounded off all those edges I didn't think. Yeah, I don't think the Cruella in this is like an out and out horrible person. She is not the kind of person that she is in the animated movie and the Glenn Close movie etc. But yeah, they've let her lean into the villainous side of things a bit more. She's almost like a supervillain in this, in the way that she pulls off these grand schemes. A lot of people said that the trailers made them think Cruella was going to be a female version of Joker. As Beyonce once said, Cruella is the female version of a Joker. Of a, of a Joker. <laughs> of, a, of a Joker. I, I appreciate that reference, and I'm sure maybe about ten other listeners will. <laughs> That's not quite what this is, but in fact, the Cruella in this movie, for me, was more of a Joker than the Joker in the movie Joker, because Joker in the movie Joker doesn't do any jokes, he doesn't do any tricks. He, like, shoots one guy with a gun, and that's it. He's not a supervillain, whereas Cruella here is more of a Joker character. She's more of, like, a Heath Ledger Joker character with these crazy big schemes, or maybe maybe Jack Nicholson's Joker will be a better touchstone. These big kind of traps and tricks and heists that unravel themselves in unexpected ways. And with a sense of mischief as well, I thought that came across really nicely, that it's very, very playful. And that it's basically a war of fashion, of, like, punky fashion versus old-school fashion. I'd kind of never really seen that in a film before. Uh, too many needle drops, I will say, though. I, I will defend the needle drops. They were extremely on the nose and there was tons of them. But every time they did them, I was happy to hear that song. I think the whole film is really stylish and really slick. Oh my god, that sequence with the tracking shot through Liberty, I thought was amazing. I, I, I think this film has a lot of really great stylistic touches. It has that slightly Scorsesean feel that um, director Craig Gillespie also did I, Tonya, and that played a lot with with needle drops and shifting perspectives and lots of those like fluid camera movements that you tend to see in something like Goodfellas, and to see that in a Disney movie was such a treat. It was very cool and stylish, but it definitely started to feel at one point like it was literally every single second of this movie was soundtracked by one of the hits of the 60s and 70s, and it became a little bit too much for me. I was like, let it breathe for a second, please. That's fair, that's fair. So, big thumbs up for Cruella then. Just out of interest, so what did Cruella outstrip to become your new number one of these animated redos? I think, and it's the next one we'll get to on the podcast, so I might rewatch it, but I think that my favourite up till this point was The Jungle Book. Very good, very good. Well, we'll get there in a couple of episodes' time. But on the subject of live-action remakes, that whole thing basically began in the 90s with the live-action 101 Dalmatians. I think people kind of forget that, but that's pretty much the first one that they did, and there was a long gap, really, between that, and I think, was Cinderella the next one in that kind of lineage? (laughs) Well, there was Alice in Wonderland in 2010, 
There's a live-action Jungle Book from the 90s. I can't remember if that's before or after 101 Dalmatians. I've not seen that, and we'll get to that in a couple of episodes' time as well. But 101 Dalmatians with Glenn Close from 1996 definitely does feel like the first time Disney had a really big hit with one of these. And I watched it after I saw Cruella. I had a marathon where I watched every other Dalmatians thing, and we'll be getting to them. Ben, I know you've watched it recently as well. Yep. What do you think? How does it compare to Cruella? How does it compare to the original? So I think it feels extremely different to Cruella, but I was quite impressed at how much it hues to the telling of the original animated film. Do you know what? This is the 101 Dalmatians that I grew up on. This is the one that I watched as a kid. A lot of it came back to me while I was revisiting it. And there are a couple of things that really jumped out to me. So I thought it was quite an authentic, generally, retelling of this story. But something that I hadn't really twigged, especially as a kid, because why would I, was that the screenplay was written by John Hughes. And it totally feels like a 90s John Hughes-penned family adventure with lots of slapstick antics. This version of Jasper and Horace literally feel like the Wet Bandits from Home Alone. It has quite a bit of an American feel. It's weird in that it's set in a very 90s Richard Curtisy London, but the writing and the feel and the pace and the tone of it is like American family comedy. But I thought it all came together quite nicely, and, it, it, I, and maybe that's because I have some affection for it from watching it. I think at least a few times when I was a kid, like I, I vividly remembered the opening meet cutes with the dogs chasing each other through the park and bicycles ending up in the fountain. Um, and also towards the end when Cruella falls into a massive barrel of poo was my main sort of uh, recollection of this film. Really stuck with me. Yeah, so maybe I'm bringing some of that kind of positive association to it. But I think it's I think it's fun. I think it's kind of sweet. And the dogs are crazy cute. Yeah, it's very Home Alone-y, isn't it? I thought in particular in the way that these characters, Horace and Jasper and Cruella, are constantly getting their comeuppance, getting bashed about. They basically replace the car chase climax to the original with an extended like Home Alone sequence in a barn with various farm animals chucking things at the baddies and I think there's an electric fence scene with Horace and Jasper where they get electrocuted as well so it's very very home alone. Roger is American in this which kind of cut me deep. I don't like Roger is such an iconic Englishman to me you know <laughs> he's the the picture of what an Englishman should be. He's a real fabulous character. Yeah he's a real fabulous character and they um wrote over that a little bit, making him American. And they also make him a video game designer, right? It's so 90s. I love that they went, well, I don't know if it necessarily works that he's like a struggling musician now. What if he's making video games, yo? (laughs) They make him a struggling video game designer, right? The video game that he's making basically looks exactly like the movie 101 Dalmatians. So this guy is like animating by hand a video game based on his dog and that is his job it would take years and years and years to do that right like that's like a cuphead level of (laughs) commitment to making a video game no wonder he's struggling like that's a ridiculous amount of work that he's carved out for himself but i did want to bring this up because they actually made a version of that that you can play no way there's quite a few 101 dalmatians 
video games, actually, but this is the only one that I really want to dwell on. It's called 101 Dalmatians Escape from the Ville Manor, and it's based on the game from the live-action movie. Not based on the movie, based on the game from the movie. And it has, a, a, like, a mine-cart chase sequence in a similar way to the game in the movie. And the real reason I wanted to bring it up is because I think it's the only video game based on a Disney movie to get a reference in a Will Smith song directly. Wait, what? what? There are layers within layers of pop cultural references here so wait so a video game based on a fictional video game in the live action remake of the disney animated 101 dalmatians based on the book by Dodie smith was then itself referenced in a will smith song which one and why and what's the reference um it was the will smith song just the two of us from 1997 same year that the game came out and that's a song about his son Right? It's about being with his son while he's growing up. And it includes the lines, It's a full-time job to be a good dad. You've got so much more stuff than I had. I got a study just to keep with the changing times. 101 Dalmatians on your CD-ROM. He has Ooh. to really struggle to make ROM rhyme with times. Just to keep with the changing times. <laughs> 101 Dalmatians on CD-ROM. <laughs> you can force it, but that just does not rhyme <laughs> at all. He does a much better job of it than me. CD-ROMs, what a time that was. So, yeah, well, I'm going to have to track down this game and, and see if there's an emulator for it. Have you played a it? Song. Um, no, I've not. It looks poor. It's like a point-and-click kind of thing. But, you know, it can't be too easy if it baffled Will Smith. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that we should just talk about from the live-action 90s version is Glenn Close's Cruella, and I think she is amazing in that role. Like you said, she's much more like the animated one. But she imbues that performance with that real cartoonishness. There are moments that the way that she moves and her silhouette and how just purely evil she is, I think just really plays into how that character is characterized in the animated version. And she does a great job of translating that into something physical and real. And they knew that she was the star, right? Like she is the character who is pushed from this movie. She's top build. She's on all the posters. And she is the only returning element in 102 Dalmatians. Have you, have you seen 102 Dalmatians, Ben? I have not seen it. I don't think I saw it as a kid. I have not revisited it. What Am I missing out? I mean, I kind of preferred this to 101 Dalmatians. Whoa! Yeah, so I, I didn't see this as a kid either. I went back and watched it recently. So like I say, Roger and Anita and Pongo and Padita are not in this. That's all dispensed with. It's a different 101 Dalmatians. So so there is an entirely separate... I mean, it baffles my mind that they managed to find 101 Dalmatians in the first film anyway, but all of those lot are put to the side for a 101 new Dalmatians. How many Dalmatians are out there, and where does this extra one come from? Oh, that's a really good question. Oh, I'll tell you what the extra one is. It's, um, it's a parrot played by Eric Idle, who thinks he's a... Dalmatian. That doesn't count. It's 101 Dalmatians and one parrot who thinks he is a Dalmatian. So one of the dogs in question is Dipstick, who is one of Pongo and Padita's puppies from the first movie, and this is about Dipstick's litter and then obviously a whole other bunch of Dalmatians who get kidnapped in a second attempt by Cruella de Vil after she gets released from prison because she's been hypnotised into loving dogs. But then, when she's on the outside, she flips back again and tries to capture loads of dogs. And I don't know, I just thought this was... I, I preferred this to the original because... To the original live-action film, that is. Because <laughs> that movie... 
that movie does follow the first one really closely and this kind of plotted out its own journey again a little bit. I hated the parrot, that was horrible. Rather than having a parrot just talking like a parrot would, repeating what people say, etc. They had to have Eric Idle record whole lines of dialogue for the parrot and that was horrible. But there's a, a new kind of puppy protagonist called Oddball who is a Dalmatian without any spots and she's always running around trying to get spots from places and she is adorable. So I'll be honest, this was a couple of weeks ago and I've sweated out most of the water in my body multiple times over <laughs> since then. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to remember why, but I came away from that movie with a distinct sense that it was the better of the first two live-action 101 Dalmatians. Right. And when you say that it charted out its own course then, it didn't follow the plot of the animated straight-to-DVD or straight-to-VHS sequel 101 Dalmatians 2. What's the subtitle for this one? Patches London Adventure. Patches London Adventure. I mean, they're all London adventures. The dogs live in London. Yes, but this is Patches London Adventure. Again, I didn't mind this. I watched 101 Dominations 2, and I think it's been animated with a computer. I don't think it's hand-drawn. But they have gone to the effort of recreating the xerography style from the original, so it does look like it's been done in that like traced style that the original had. This is about Patch, again, one of the puppies, who is desperate to audition for a part in the new Thunderbolt movie, Thunderbolt vs. The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is filming in London. So Thunderbolt, if you've forgotten, was the western-like dog show that the puppies loved to watch in the original Dalmatians. So Thunderbolt's their hero. And, yeah, Patch has heard that that's filming in London, so he runs away from home in order to audition. Cruella is back, she wants to kill the puppies again, this time it's because she wants to make modern art. She's gotten in with this, like, swinging 60s, like, Andy Warhol-style artist voiced by Martin Short, and she's gonna capture the puppies to kill them and make them into art in nondescript ways, but presumably violent. So, Patch eventually is the one who has to save the day there with the help from Thunderbolt. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) It's one of the better ones. Okay, so Cruella is top-tier live-action remakiness. The 90s 101 Dalmatians is actually pretty good. You thought 102 Dalmatians was better. You thought 101 Dalmatians 2, the animated one, was actually pretty good as well. Is it? This is the best of the Disney lasting legacy spin-off prequel sequel-ness that's out there. It might be, because there's a lot of stuff as well. And they managed to keep a fairly consistent hit rate going forward. So, yeah, I mean, the chances that one of these things was going to be absolutely god-awful were quite high, but I don't know. I'm feeling warmly towards it. And so, what else have we got? Is there anything for the parks this time? Barely anything for the parks. No kind of structures, not even like a shop or a restaurant based on this movie. Along with Bambi, I think this is one of the biggest classic films with basically zero presence in the parks. The exception being that there is a Cruella de Vil walk-around character who'll pop up as a meet-and-greet and she'll be in, like, shows and parades every now and then, but normally with, like, a big group of villain characters. Very little representation in the parks. There's been a couple of TV shows, though, one of which I used to watch as a kid, 101 Dalmatians, the series, which 
Again, I'm upset at this because it relocates the action to America. It basically pretends that the first movie happened in America all along. When it was very, very specifically set in London and just outside London, is it Surrey or Kent or somewhere? They're super specific about the locations on this one. You can't just pretend it was America all along. So in this 1990s cartoon, they are living in, I think it's meant to be New York, it's like the big city, but they have to move to a farm because uh, Nanny gets mugged, Oof. which is pretty dark. Nanny gets held up. Uh, I think the dogs save the day, but yeah, they, they, they have to move to a farm, which is what they always said they were going to do to the Dalmatian plantation, so there you go. Unfortunately, Cruella de Vil, who is a banker in this, wants the land that the farm is on, and she's always trying to rip them out of the farm. And in this, we also have a bird who thinks they are a dog, and in this case, it's Spot the Chicken. I already like the sound of Spot the Chicken. That's yeah. cool. Spot the Chicken is a lot better than whatever the hell the parrot was called. I didn't even write his name down from 102 Dalmatians. Yeah, there you go, 101 Dalmatians, the series. It's fine. I enjoyed it when I was a kid. In 2019, there was also 101 Dalmatian Street, and this is all on Disney+, Plus if you want to watch it. This focuses on the great-great-great-grandchildren of Pongo and Pedita, who live in an apartment in Camden. Oy, uh, in bloody Camden! Very good. Uh, so they actually live in this apartment alone. It's an all-dog apartment. It's owned by an eccentric billionaire named Dodie Smith, who has left them there to go and live on an island, presumably some sort of tax haven. She's, and she's left all the dogs to just live in this apartment. The dad goes to work as a fireman, because <laughs> he's a Dalmatian. He goes to work in the fire brigade and then comes back and he's like, hi, honey, I'm home. It's that kind of show. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds nuts. It's about a selection of the Dalmatians just learning lessons in London. Uh, Ollie Mers is in it. Of course, why not? Yeah. He's a sexy Doberman named Spike with oh, a Cornish no. accent who they meet when they go on holiday to Cornwall. Oh, I don't like that. But the best thing about this show, because I did watch quite a few episodes, I became a little bit engrossed, right? And the reason is that Cruella is like built up through the whole season of the show as this like shadowy villain. So the, the main baddie in the show is this like kid. I can't remember his name. He's this, like, kid who's always trying to catch the Dalmatians. And they realise halfway through the season that this kid is Cruella de Vil's, like, great-grandson or something. <gasps> Twist. So, so when that happens, it's pitched as, like, the worst thing that could possibly have discovered. And the parents are speaking about Cruella in hushed tones because they've heard the legend pass down their family line about Cruella de Vil, who nearly killed them all. And she gets built up all season in these hushed tones until the final episode, where... Cruella finally attacks and it is like a horror movie she is this like violent character who's only ever seen in like stark red light and and I think that the Dalmatians are like trapped in the house and Cruella's stalking them through the house and like she's got almost these claw-like nails and she's slashing at them through curtains and things it's scary 101 Dalmatian Street there you go check it out (laughs) that sounds kind of great it's pretty cool yeah I thought it was pretty cool Oh man, well there you go, a very very good lasting legacy then of uh, 101 Dalmatians and Absolutely. as long as they don't try and do the 101 Dalmatians story, I'm excited about Cruella 2 if it's anything like as good as the first one, sign me up but anyway, I think we should hand things back over to past Ben and past Sam, pre-coronavirus Sam, happier days Ah, oh, the good times 
and of course to the great Mike Reander. Hope you're enjoying the episode. We're off. <laughs> And that is it for this week's class. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute joy, a complete pleasure. Have you enjoyed your time in the hallowed halls? Of course, yeah, no, absolutely. I, it was it was a blast. I mainly am just fixated completely on the starlight barking. Can't think about anything else. And that's what my life is going to be about for the next, I don't know, two to three months. So both of us, like we said, are huge fans of the Mitchells versus the Machines. Congratulations on the film. It's incredible. And now I was already excited about whatever you were going to do next. But now knowing that whether you mean it to or not, the Starlight Barking is going to be an influence on that. It like, will be. It just makes that more exciting. I've just written a letter to my lawyer uh, telling her to call the Dodie Smith estate to get the rights like now. Um, no, but um, no, but it was it was it was really fun. And thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. And you can watch The Mitchells versus The Machines on Netflix worldwide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, you know, guys, Army of the Dead just came out. We really need those clicks now more than ever. <laughs> um, no, um, but yeah, it would be uh, totally check it out if you if you like animation. And maybe in the future, some jerk will be on a podcast and pointing out the flaws in, in, in my movie which are there many <laughs> <laughs> hey maybe maybe that'll be us if we do a season two yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll be doing re-andiversity in a few years time. <laughs> yeah you've got one you don't have a lot of material my friend well but you can also catch gravity falls on disney plus that's I true don't know if disney knows about this podcast probably best that they don't but uh yeah you worked on the show gravity falls all of that is on there uh for disney plus subscribers so go and check out mike's work because it's absolutely amazing and and where can people find you online uh, I'm I'm on Twitter. I don't do much. If you like, if you really like the Mitchells versus Machines, I post a bunch of junk about that on Twitter uh, at Michael Rianda. But mostly, I'm just going to be in a in a in a room reading the Starlight Bark and <laughs> and um, you know working on working on other stuff. I will say that Twitter is absolutely fantastic, man. You've been a really really good follow in the weeks oh, following cool. the Mitchells versus the like the the stuff that you tweet about the process and other stuff that you retweet from other people who worked on the movie about the process. I think would be really useful to like any animation students listening to give you an insight into how that works and it's yeah, it's been really cool to see you be so transparent with some of that stuff on there. Yeah, the, t- the team is really great, and also Sony has been nice about not stopping us <laughs> from doing that um, because we're posting a bunch of cutscenes and and that sort of stuff um, that we liked but came out of the movie for a reason, but is sometimes fun to watch. Join us again then for our next seminar when we'll be trying to prove we're worthy enough to lift a sword of legend with Arthurian adventure, The Sword in the Stone. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, please do leave us a review or a star rating. We'll let you borrow one of our 99 puppies for a day. Mike will read the Starlight Biking to you page by page. He's signed up. He's happy to do it. I'm here. I'm I'm here with you. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Mike. Have a good one. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you so much for listening. The Starlight Biking rules. Diversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Music